Hello, LineClick Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the LineClick Thoughts Podcast. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. Welcome back to another week of the show. I am very excited to be talking to my guests today, but before we get into that, I want to remind you all that I've started a newsletter. You can go to LineClickThoughts.com and put in your email and hit subscribe, and you'll get a newsletter every Monday with information from me regarding things I find interesting, uh, just things that I use in my daily routine or just items that I find that will help anyone in the food industry over almost four, four years of doing this. I have found so much that I like to share with you all. So that newsletter is the place to go. You just go put in your email. It's free and you will subscribe and get that information. So every Monday it goes out. So be sure to do that before the next Monday. And uh, yeah, I'm very excited to have you all join it. Also, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple, please leave a review. Both platforms have a review function. It helps me get more traction, lets me know how you like the podcast, lets me know what I can improve on. So please leave a review. My guest today is a return guest, and his name is Dylan Leary. Dylan was back on episode 49 of Lion Cook Thoughts. It released on August 24th of 2019, and then we talked about his nonprofit People for Tomorrow, which is an organization focused on teaching the people of Sarodi, Uganda skills of self-sustainability that include cooking and medicinal education. Dylan and I met at uh, the Colony Institute of America, and from there, I've gotten to see Dylan do a lot of great things, and most recently over the last few years, he's opened and is running Pelham Farms. It's a 10-acre regenerative and educational farm on Cape Cod, and you can find them at Pelham Farms on Instagram. It's P-E-L-H-A-M-F-A-R-M-S, Pelham Farms on Instagram. I'll put that in the description as well. And in this conversation, I talked to Dylan on why exactly he wanted to create this farm and what the inspiration for it was and what his day-to-day challenges and uh, successes have been over the last year and a half, two years. And I really love this conversation because I got to connect with Dylan post-COVID. And I know it changed a lot of things for people in the industry. And I really just have found his journey. And you go on the Instagram and you'll see it for yourself. His journey of building out this farm, the food program he's trying to build, and everything else in between. I found it really fascinating. And I really enjoyed watching from afar. And I was very grateful and happy to be able to talk to Dylan and kind of go back and see you know, what's been going on with this farm that I've been seeing on Instagram. And so... I really think it's a great conversation. It's very farm focused. Dylan does talk somewhat about food, but it's really about the nitty gritty of starting a farm by yourself and some of the challenges you might face. And I really find it fascinating. And I know a lot of people in this audience value people who grow food and value where food comes from. So if you're at all interested in anything like that, I really think you will have a lot of value coming from this episode. So thank you, Dylan, so much for being on the show. Thank you all for listening. And here we go. All right, Dylan, welcome back to the show. It has been over three years. You were on episode 49, and we are back. So welcome back wow. to the podcast. Time flies. Thank you, Ray. Of course. Uh, if you just want to start out by introducing yourself to the audience or reintroducing yourself, that'd be great. Absolutely. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dylan Leary, and I manage Pelham Farms on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um we have a 10-acre organic and regenerative farm here in Cape Cod. Um, our main goals are education and organic food production. Um, we mostly focus on vegetable production, but we also have about 130 laying hens and four miniature pigs. Um, so it's... Uh, it's quite the, the little place. We've got a really unique property, and um, yeah. Nice. Well, we're going to get into all of that, but I uh, really just want to start out with saying how cool it's been to see your journey on this, and I know like you had this interest. I know you had the interest in, obviously, like People for Tomorrow, and in terms of like being with the land and helping people out and getting people closer to their food. What, um, what, like, kind of sparked the idea or what was that like moment where you were like, yeah, I'm actually going to just do a farm. Like, obviously you might've had the idea, but when did it become reality for you where you, where you were like, yeah, I'm going to commit to this. And what was the reason for that? Yeah. So I think it took, um, it obviously took many years of cooking throughout high school and then, um, a little bit, um, before CIA. And then obviously my, my time at CIA, those, let's say, 
eight or so years were just such a deep dive into the food world and, and, you know, getting an understanding of the food system and how it all works and how our food is actually produced and actually grown um, at the, the soil level. And so, you know, it, it was definitely a very long time coming. And I know you just mentioned People for Tomorrow, and that's the nonprofit that we started when we were still in college and um, thought we were going to be going more in the international direction. My grandparents have an awesome connection to a, a center in Uganda, and we had made one trip over there before COVID happened and the whole world changed. And then we had to really reassess and figure out what we were going to do. And for a little while, I really didn't know what to do. I was pretty stumped. I, I didn't really want to be stuck anywhere in the world because I wanted to be mobile. I'm very adventurous. I really want to have a, you know, a... Um, a really significant and wide-ranging effect on the world, specifically the food system, obviously. And so I knew I wanted to do something big, but I wasn't really sure what it was. And then, you know, the pandemic just kind of changed everything for everyone. Um, and for me, I, um, at the time, the Pelham House Resort uh, was was opening its um, brand new building and new restaurant that they had been building for about two years. And um, my family got involved in this hotel a couple years back. And I happened to be on Cape Cod when the restaurant was opening. And um, I was loving working there as a cook. I was, you know, I was the first cook in there cooking with the executive chef in the brand new kitchen and just, you know, prepping out all the new um, recipes and everything for the, for opening day of the menu. And um, as time went on it, you know, I was still trying to figure out, well, obviously, you know, I'm not just going to be a line cook, you know, for a super long time. I still wanted to get very much get back to the farming and education pieces Um and so I was like, huh, how could I, you know, take the momentum of this hotel and the fact that they're operating, you know, a pretty, pretty decent sized restaurant, a pretty awesome restaurant. Um, and I had all these ideas and kind of just one thing led to another within conversation with my family, um, you know, specifically my grandparents and my parents of me just kind of like sharing my, my passion and my thoughts that had, had been, you know, accumulating over the past few years and and saying that like hey maybe we have a really special opportunity right here right now on Cape Cod you know this place where I'd been coming to been kind of was kind of a childhood you know dream world to me I would only come here for two weeks or so every summer to reunite with extended family and always absolutely loved um you know this place and so that was the idea and my family was in support of it and you know, we very quickly went off to go look at properties and we had a property in mind from years of just being in this small town and driving around and seeing this one vacant, abandoned um, nursery garden center. And so we started our property search there and turns out that that property was not currently on the market, but another one was and it was right through the woods and abutted this other property that we knew of. and. We called the the realtor. We got a tour the same day, and we just absolutely fell in love with the land. It's seven and a half acres. Um, there's a two bedroom house. There's a three bedroom um, a horse old horse barn that upstairs has been renovated and has three bedrooms. Um, and then we have two nice size permanent chicken coops and a woodwork shop and two fenced in gardens and in a big back field. So it's really kind of a perfect setup for a small farm. You know, mm -hmm. we took those first couple steps onto the property. We just kind of knew and everything happened from there. We decided within a couple days or weeks that we were actually going to go through with this. Obviously it took a, a couple months to actually close on the property. We'll be coming up on, two years of owning the property in about the middle of October. Um, and yeah, so I'd say that was kind of, you know, the, um, how actually committing to a farm 
ended up happening, which is kind of funny because, like I said, I really didn't want to get stuck anywhere. But here I am managing um, <laughs> 10 acres and lots of vegetables, lots of animals, and, and just in general, a lot going on in a place that's very hard to leave. Um, and a place that's a little bit isolated from the rest of the country, honestly, if you're familiar with the geogra geography, um, I'm on kind of a, looks like someone's flexing their arm and it's, it's actually <laughs> technically an island after they dug the Cape Cod Canal. So, um, it's a very unique part of the, the country, part of the world, but I'm definitely happy that I'm here and I know that, you know, what we're doing on this farm is going to be really special and still going to have that reach and that impact that I've always wanted to have. Okay. Yeah. I think it's super cool. And we touched on this before we started recording how like, like when I, so Dylan and I went to culinary school together. I, I graduated uh, before Dylan did and his class that came in, uh, they, they were so much more interested. I feel like it's from my, like optically from my point of view in like farming, the food system, uh, our friend Ariel, she's into like urban planning like there's so many different things that you all were interested in besides like just like going in and cooking and I often like wonder like what that was and like obviously I'm out of restaurants now I'm in a different direction but what do you think drew your class into like a different route because usually like if you go to the CIA it's like we're training you to be a chef we're training you to work in fine dining kitchens or you know operate hotels lodges whatever it might be but you all came in and you had this like different want of just the being more integrated into the food system and how it affects others. What do you think that came from? Like what I just trying to get a gauge on like when that changed the culture culture wise for like students coming in to like be more focused on their food system. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like to think that um, the general increasing awareness of climate issues, social issues, um, you know, all of these different issues that are very much prevalent in our world today, I think they've been kind of coming to the surface more and more in the, over the past couple of years and, and definitely with the pandemic exposed a lot of cracks in the system, but that was, you know, that was a few years after this, this time period that you're talking about. Um, you know, for, for me personally, and maybe this can explain the trend in some way, um, it was, it was pretty cool that the CIA had just started their blended program where they were blending the associate's degree and the bachelor's degree. And mm -hmm. so instead of going into the school with the mindset of, you know, I'm just come, I'm, I'm going to complete the associate's program. I'm going to learn how to cook. Obviously there's a lot of other supplemental knowledge there, but the shorter program, much more hands-on, very technical, very much focused on the cooking um, you know, when you come into the school with that being your goal, even if you're going to add bachelors on afterwards, I feel like it's just a, a big mindset difference going for that and knowing, you know, knowing that that's going to be your focus versus what they had started to offer with my class being the first, which was you can pick which bachelor's program you want to pursue and you can be pursuing that alongside pursuing your associates in either baking and pastry or culinary arts. Yeah. And so I think that's what, you know, allowed many people in my class to have like other aspirations outside of just cooking because from day one, from semester one, you know, we actually had, which is pretty unheard of at the CIA, instead of going right into fundamentals, which is, you know, everyone everyone that's been through fundamentals knows that that's kind of how the CIA experience usually starts. For us, it started with an entire semester of academics. Yeah. You weren't even in the kitchen. And that was a really weird feeling for a lot of people. And I, I'm sure a few people even left. Um, but being forced and being kind of thrown into the academia world of food, if you will, before being thrown into the kitchen, I think primed a lot of people's brains to say okay there's a lot more out there and as i'm going along this journey i can maybe pick up you know something that's more in the liberal arts of food world whether it be food writing food photography food systems sustainability um and yeah so i think i think in general the cia did a pretty good job at like fostering that like 
next um, that kind of like next level of thinking with our program and with the bachelor's programs in general. They're they're pretty incredible programs that really allow students to dive pretty deeply. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I would think that it was kind of a, a combination of that program, kind of just societal shifts and people becoming much more and more aware of the different issues we're dealing with. And then just like the students having the mindset of also the students, you know, being on average, probably a little bit younger and more so coming right out of high school because this blended program was a lot more approachable as your typical four year college track to go right from high school into that mm-hmm. um, you know, versus you get a lot more mixed demographic and mixed age with folks that are just looking to get an associate's degree from the school. So I think it's kind of a combination of those factors. Yeah, no, thank you for going in on that and uh, giving me uh, just an idea. I think it, I think it is really cool, and it's been cool to see how you all have been, you know, creating an impact in the uh, food space ever since. So, uh, but getting back to the farm, so looking at, so you get the property, and now remind me, like, how much farming knowledge did you have before this? Like, what was it like? And obviously, like, this is where I would find. It frustrating as a farmer so i did the i did the farm to table concentration in california when we got to like we owned a bed of land so not anywhere near what you're doing and i even had trouble growing on that and that was hard work we'd be up early and i definitely that was like man that was tough for like one bed of produce not let alone a farm but i could imagine like california obviously is such a fertile place to grow from what i you know from what i saw and what was explained to me Obviously, Cape Cod's a different environment. I'm, I'm assuming harsher weather conditions for some crops. It's de- probably definitely colder. Um, what was it like for you to first like get your knowledge of farming in general and then adapting to Cape Cod? And did any of the knowledge you had going into like this project have to be kind of morphed due to the, like, the direct climate that Cape Cod offers? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So a lot of my farming knowledge and experience which was very little for starting my own farm um was from california as well okay um, but in southern california whereas you were I believe more in the north um but that was at apricot lane farms and that was actually my externship through the culinary institute so i, I was able to, you went there yeah 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 so um that was another that was a really unique part of my CIA experience was that I was able to um, talk the administration into letting me be the first student to pursue a fully agricultural <laughs> yeah. externship because, because as I was just talking about, I had my sights set on the applied food studies degree and specifically work in food systems and agriculture through that. And there was nothing that I wanted hands-on experience with more than to be on a farm like at that level. Um, cause Apricot Lane is, you know, a, a really awesome farm. They're pretty good size, about 300 acres and mm-hmm. they're doing, they're doing cattle, sheep, pigs, chickens, ducks, lots of vegetable production, orchard, fruit production, like pretty much everything you can think of, um, in an organic and regenerative and biodynamic way. So it was an amazing place to spend um, about four months there. And I just was basically a sponge while I was there. And so much of my knowledge that I'm using on this farm now just comes from those months. Um, But it was definitely different. And like you said, the climate is definitely different. You know, that's Southern California. Um, It is very, you know, very mild year round, uh, very little rainfall. So lots of, um, you know, reliance on irrigation systems for, for, for different things. Um, but yeah. And and so it was definitely a, you know, a transition taking that. And then luckily I, I was able to then after that, go through the farm to table concentration, um, at the CIA, same as you did, but on the New York campus. And that was Mm. a very different experience. Um, but it was incredible because we were able to visit so many farms in the Hudson Valley area that that was kind of a really good, and that was in the fall. And so that was a really good way for me to understand, you know, and take that transition from learning about farming in Southern California and now into the Hudson Valley, especially because we were seeing these farms in the fall 
and you know they were taking the tomato vines down out of the greenhouse and flushing the salts out of the soil and flipping everything so that they could plant all their winter greens, mm-hmm. you know, which had already started in trays. And so, you know, seeing that kind of seasonal shift at a time where you might not see that in another place was really important because now we're, you know, we're following similar schedules. Um, yeah. Cape Cod, Cape Cod is actually a really great place within New England to be growing because our geography is so unique because we are out on this fairly thin arm with water on both sides. It actually stays pretty temperate and mild. Um, It obviously still gets cold. It'll still snow, but it doesn't snow very much at all. I think last year we got like one or two significant storms, um, you know, but it's it's nothing more than a couple inches unless there's kind of a freak blizzard or something. But in general, you know, having water on both sides really keeps a little bit warmer of a winter. And if you look at like the, um, the USDA hardiness zone map, all the different, um, you know, I forget exactly which numbers the range goes from or two, but, um, you know, Cape Cod is, is very unique in that it's almost it's almost like virginia or or something kind of similar you know it's it's because of this proximity to water it's more like growing in the mid-atlantic than it is kind of in the middle of new england um and certainly things would change as you head inland you know western massachusetts in the winter is completely different than cape cod in the winter so in that way it's definitely a little bit less extreme which is nice because one of the biggest learning curves, I think, farming, um, you know, farming in New England and farming in a place where it freezes is if you're trying to do any plant production or if you have animals, if anything needs water and you're in the middle of the winter, you're dealing with water freezing. And I'm from Florida. And so I didn't have even on a home level in terms of keeping the home warm enough in the winter to keep pipes from freezing and things, I never experienced any of that. And so, you know, managing this farm, living in this house, managing this house, kind of learning all of that all at the same time Mm -hmm. was definitely a learning curve. It definitely took, you know, many, many frozen hoses and dragging hoses around and letting them thaw and melt out and frustration and lots of hard work (laughs) in the bitter cold will definitely teach you to have a really good system, you know, come that time. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing this year has been kind of setting up our infrastructure, getting underground water lines put in, um, you know, heating different areas that need to be heated so that things don't freeze and all of that. So, you know, it's definitely been quite the learning curve. Um, I definitely feel prepared, but at the same time, you know, learning many new things every single day. Um, but probably, you know, one of the best ways to learn. So, yeah, the waterline thing is no joke, man. I, I, as you, as everyone should know, I'm from Buffalo and, uh, my family has a cabin out in, uh, about an hour, uh, South in freedom, New York. And it gets so cold there. And with like the running water there or like the water lines, it gets so cold that it would freeze. So we would always have to like ice proof the lines. So yep. it, it was never, it was not fun. Um, what, so you're getting set up and obviously you have these challenges. What were like some of the, like, how long did it take you to start like planting seed and getting um, pr- like just crop in the ground? Like wh- how long did that take you? Yeah. So um, we closed on the property in October of 2020 and in March of 21, we were putting radish seeds directly into the ground. Okay. Um, but that took, you know, that took the fall and winter of clearing. The the garden that we started in was completely overgrown, um, you know, like brush a little bit taller than you and I. And so mm. it was a lot of clearing and then some shallow tilling and, you know, shaping of beds, amending with some compost some granular fertilizer, putting wood chips in the walkways, and then and then putting the seeds in the ground. And the first seeds to go in the ground were just put in by hand. Just, uh, you know, probably used a little stick to 
to make a little ravine in the soil and then we were placing radish seeds you know every every inch or so just with our fingers and <laughs> that's changed a lot we now have two different seeders that we use for direct seeding um nice but yeah so so you know bought the property in the fall and then by that you know first spring we were putting stuff directly in the ground and then we decided to build a greenhouse but it wasn't ready until june or so so i had a very late and light um season of growing vegetables last year because a lot of the seedlings you know we can get started in the greenhouse a little bit earlier and yeah. uh, and then you know if you can plant tomatoes and other heat loving crops into the greenhouse you obviously get a lot more um productivity out of them because they prefer those temperatures and conditions so yeah yeah i saw the green i'm looking at instagram right now and i saw like the, i'm just trying to get a vision on the setup so i see the beds i see the greenhouse so no that's pretty cool and then obviously your radishes which were pretty good size right they, they, they looked like they came out pretty good when i'm looking at here i have this picture yeah so yeah that was that was probably from last year um we've we've grown a lot more this year we've grown some really cool varieties okay uh, different things we grew some daikon radishes that got huge like bigger than bigger than my head definitely really? um yeah a couple pounds each those are those are pretty cool and we we pickled a lot of those and tried them for the first time yesterday and they're quite delicious they were good what did you um what was your brine was it like sugar, like very sugar based, or how did you? It was um, it wasn't crazy sweet. It was apple cider vinegar based. Um, I'm pretty sure it was just apple cider vinegar, water, salt, sugar. We did one one of them pretty plain, and then one of them more as a soy pickle. So just added some organic shoyu. That sounds good. Yeah. So you had radishes. What other crops do you, did you have? I mean, obviously, you might not be able to like say everything you've done, or maybe you can. I'm sure you can, actually, because you've done so much. But what are, like, if we break it down by season so far that you've done, if you could just kind of give a breakdown of, the, first, the crops of what each season kind of entailed at your farm. Yep. Yeah, so early in the spring, you can direct seed a lot of roots. You can You can do... Radishes, turnips, beets, carrots. Um, you can do cold hardy greens like spinach, arugula, Asian greens, mustard greens, tatsoi. Um, and then, and then, a lot of the a lot of the longer season crops usually get started in trays. Um, so like tomatoes, peppers, eggplants, mm -hmm. these kinds of things we usually start in, in trays or in pots and those will live in the greenhouse for, for a couple of weeks until they go in the ground. Um, and that kind of buys us some time. So, you know, while we're sowing some seeds directly into the ground in the early spring, we're also sowing some seeds inside the heated greenhouse. And then, um, you know, once that, once the, the chance of, that last frost is gone. Um, those things can usually go in the ground. It's kind of just a a waiting game and feeling how the weather's been. And you know, if it feels like a a cooler or a warmer spring, you can kind of gauge when to get your stuff in, out into the ground. Um, and then we've grown some lettuces and Swiss chard. Like those are good, like midsummer greens. Um, what else? We have had some pretty good luck with some cool little varieties of potatoes. So we okay. definitely want to do more of that next year because, you know, just kind of growing up on grocery store potatoes and then tasting potatoes that we grew ourselves organically. Like there was definitely a significant flavor difference. And um, going forward with our farm to table aspirations, we would love to have more potatoes. Obviously, it's something that takes a good amount of land to grow we don't have a ton of land but we're trying to get creative with different systems of growing in pots and um different beds and things to get a higher yield um we'll also be planting garlic for the first time this fall so garlic something you, that you plant in the fall and then you usually mulch the bed and then um 
the greens start to show themselves early spring and you know they grow kind of to midsummer they put their scapes out usually clip the scapes and then um when it's ready it, it can be harvested and dried and that's something another another thing that we're really excited to have um a nice little stock of for our farm to table operations so um yeah that's kind of an overview of most of the things that we're growing um all the tomatoes that we're growing are grown in the greenhouses okay. and they are all indeterminate tomatoes. Okay. So there's two types of tomatoes. There's determinate and indeterminate. A determinate tomato plant would put all of its flowers out. All of its flowers would get pollinated, set with fruit, and then all the fruit would ripen all at one time. And in the you know, massive tomato fields in, let's say, Florida, they're pretty mm-hmm. much only growing determinate tomatoes because all the labor happens at once. And so, you know, the planting happens at once, the harvesting happens at once, et cetera. Um, we are growing indeterminate tomatoes, which means instead of this bush that has a bunch of ripe tomatoes on it all at the same time, we are growing a vining type, which puts off a cluster of flowers and fruit after every leaf. So it basically alternates leaf flower cluster um and so that allows us to grow over a very long period of time because as long as the plants are happy those vines will continue to grow and produce fruit um and so we are you know constantly training training these vines because they're growing so long so we use a trellis system and it's all suspended with using steel cable attached to um, the end walls of the greenhouses and um you know they're all kind of strung up we we prune them every couple of days because they kind of like to go crazy in their growth and we prefer to have um just one one growth node one leader uh just kind of one vine to work with it makes it a lot easier um because they are planted at uh, just a foot apart and so if we were to let them kind of take over naturally it would be too much foliage um and so this is kind of how we control it all Hmm. but we're using a a lean and lower system so basically every time that vine grows a little bit more it's leaned over and lowered so all the vines are basically growing at a diagonal and they're kind of growing almost in like a loop and they're kind of looks like they're chasing each other if you can picture that okay and that's because you know they if we went straight up with them it would be it would be so tall, they'd be hitting the roof, we'd be on ladders harvesting tomatoes. So this trellising system really just helps, you know, all the fruit be kind of at easy working height. Awesome. It's pretty cool, man. I'm sure there's so much like, I can imagine there's so much gratification in, tra- in like figuring stuff like that out. Like you have an issue, you solve it and you're like, oh, cool, we figured it out. Like, do you find that there's a mm-hmm. lot of those moments on the farm for you where you're working with something and you like get that? You just get the right solution for it and that's it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's some things that are like that and it's super, super nice and satisfying. And then there's other things where it's like, ah, what are we going to do about that thing? <laughs> like we've just been trying to come up with a solution and it just never works and we're just still dealing with this problem. What are we going to do? So there's there's a lot of that. Um, you know, the our pest pressure has been pretty bad this year. Cape Cod is kind of known for having a ton of little cottontail rabbits running around everywhere and they absolutely decimate the gardens when they can get in. And so just working on like really tightening up our biosecurity, if you will, our pest, you know, our pest control. Um, what are the other pests is rabbits and then what else? Rabbits. Um, moles or voles you know different kind of rats mice moles voles i don't know what it acts what exactly it is out there but something in that realm um any deer on cape cod we do have deer um we have an electric deer fence around all of our vegetables so that hasn't really been a problem yeah we also haven't been seeing them this year as much i think they they tend to show themselves a little bit more in the fall um but yeah and then um pests for the livestock are coyotes and hawks and Mm. 
We have a new chicken coop with 80 birds out in the backfield right now with no overhead cover. And there's been three hawks that have been hanging out in the area a lot, making different attempts, swooping down, trying to take chickens. One actually flew into the chicken coop while one of my employees was in there the oh, other wow. day. And she picked it up and removed it from, <laughs> from the area. So they're definitely not afraid of us. Um, wow. And, you know, dealing with pests has been a challenge this year. Yeah. So the hawk, hawks are, see, birds are scary, man, because they get to swoop down. Uh, coyotes, I mean, I grew up hunting and even like, like coyotes are everywhere out in New York and even it was weird even the other day it was maybe like two months ago now but i was out walking lily my dog and i live on like a I live in an apartment complex um it's like there's a field behind us and we're just like sitting there and lily starts growling and there's just like these two little coyotes and it's just crazy how they sneak up on you and i mean they didn't bother us they were just looking at us and they walked away and nothing like crazy happened they're just small little dog yeah. creatures but they can be <laughs> a problem for sure and they're they're so sneaky and they're quiet and What's it been like with them? Like, how how did you manage them? Did you just put up fencing, or? Yeah, yeah. Luckily, we haven't had any problems with the coyotes. Um, we use all electric netting for our livestock, so mm. the chickens, and pigs are all within electric netting that's charged with a car battery, and it's um, it's a pretty good jolt that you experience when you touch the fence, and so it works pretty well. Um. I have seen a coyote test the fence before. Hmm. Um, and basically, as soon as the nose hits the electricity, they're like they're so nervous. caught off guard by that sensation that they basically just run away. So, you know, knock on wood, um, the, fence, the electric fencing has been keeping the coyotes out. We haven't had a, a problem with any attacks or anything like that. Well, that's good. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the chickens. What? So you have uh, egg laying, and then you also have what is the other word for if you're to process them? Um, Broil. You usually call them broilers or meat birds. Are they certain breeds that you picked out, or kind of what's the, what's the story behind the chickens? Yeah. So um, we're actually not raising any chickens for meat right now. They are all laying hens. Um, we started with we started with a flock of sixty heritage breed uh hens well we thought we thought they were all hens we ended up getting a couple roosters which <laughs> excuse me which we kept around um and i can talk about in a moment but we started off with the 60 and the 60 was split up between i think it, the number was 14 heritage breeds mm. and um going back to you know my uh limited farm experience apricot lane had about 14 heritage breeds and i thought it was really cool because they're all very unique looking chickens and they all lay very unique looking eggs yeah and so when you're selling eggs retail you know from a farm like this it just i think it just adds to the magic for instead of the eggs being white or brown they're blue and green and speckled and yeah olive colored and like all these different really unique colorings um but what you lose with that well what you what you're dealing with that with the heritage breeds is is reduced laying compared to the chicken breeds the more modern chicken breeds for egg production and so basically no big egg farm in the united states or elsewhere maybe elsewhere but pretty much no one trying to produce eggs efficiently are going to keep heritage birds it's really for the backyard flock, the homesteader, um, or just, you know, the small farm that, that values it so much that they choose to do it. Okay. But we're making this transition now to cooking the food that we're producing here instead of trying to sell most of it, you know, retail or wholesale. Yeah. And so when you, as a diner, get a cooked egg on a plate, you have no idea what color the shell was. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter <laughs> um, the shell color for our cooked eggs. And so the new chickens that we got most recently, we we got more modern breeds. So these are hybrids, um, and 
they have been bred for egg production. And so their kind of claim to fame is that they lay about 380 eggs a year. Wow. So I was doing some simple math is more than an egg a day on average. <laughs> now that that is including uh, supplemental artificial light in the winter because their bodies naturally do lay far fewer eggs in the winter months um, as they feel the days, you know, are too short. Okay. It's a natural, you know, it's a natural tendency. So because in the middle of the winter, if the, if the, if chicks were to hatch from their eggs, they'd have a pretty low rate of surviving because a chick does not do well in cold temperatures. Yeah. Um, and so you can, you, but you can give them supplemental light. They call it a, you know, hen light, hen lamp. And um, you give them a couple, couple extra hours of artificial sunlight, basically, and it keeps their laying pretty consistent throughout the year. And so, 380 eggs per year versus, you know, anywhere in like the, I don't know, 200, 250 range for the, you know, or even 180 or something like that for the heritage breed. So it's just, you know, on a day-to-day basis, it's, you know, from a flock of 50, it's either like super consistent, we're getting 50 eggs from 50 birds, or it's Mm -hmm. like we're getting 20 eggs from 50 birds. And so, but the amount the amount that you feed them and the amount of labor that goes into taking care of them doesn't change because they're not laying as many eggs. It's all the other factors are the same for the input. So in terms of trying to run an efficient business, you know, and especially looking at this farm to table future for us and the eggshell color not mattering as much, I think we'll always be keeping, you know, a fairly large, larger flock of these, um, these modern egg laying breeds. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks for going into that. It's definitely probably, I mean, it is interesting, right? Like you want that heritage breed, but also at the end of the day, if you're doing a good breakfast sandwich, um, you want, you want, you need more eggs. Um, let's talk about the pigs really quick. What's up with these pigs? What breeds are they? What's the story behind them? Yeah. Um, the pigs are Cooney Coonies. Uh, it's a miniature breed. All right. And they almost went extinct. Uh, a little while ago and they were brought back there was only a handful of them left in New Zealand and some folks brought them back and now all the all the coonies that are running around the world today all their you know the ones that have kept track of it you can trace the lineage back to this original group that was almost you know wiped wiped out in New Zealand wow. um they're, they're a really unique breed of pig they have a very short face a short snout and so that keeps them from rooting extensively and really destroying the land. A lot of farmers don't like keeping pigs because of what they do to their land. They'll make giant holes because they have that rooting tendency. So this breed is is much more of a a grass grass fed, you know, a grazing um, breed of pig. They will work a lot better for you know a lot of regenerative meat farmers try to do rotational grazing. And mm-hmm. this breed works really well because they don't have the ability as much to destroy the pasture. They're more likely just to come in, mow the grasses, and then move on to their next section. So um, we acquired the pigs from our good friend Justin Butts, who we also met at the Culinary Institute. I was going to uh, ask you. I saw I, I saw on that one Instagram post that you guys got some from him. Yeah. Yep. So. Um, yeah, so Justin Justin has about 30 of these on his farm in Knox, New York, not too far from Albany. Um mm-hmm. and he he's been he's been raising them for a solid couple of years now and Nick and I got comfortable and familiar with um his pigs while we were still in school because he had them when he was in school and we would go take care of them. Um and do different things. Nick actually, I think, watched them for a full month or so while Justin was away in the winter. And so <laughs> Nick really got to know them. And we just kind of always knew that this was the breed that we wanted because they're miniature, which allows them to be just like so much easier to work with if you ever have to like really, you know, do something with the animal. It's like a 200 ant. 200 pound animal versus like an 800 pound animal so it's a lot more manageable we also have you know a lot of kids 
coming to the farm. We hope to do a lot more education in the future. But even now, we have a lot of families going on tours, and they want to meet the pigs. And you know, a um, a larger breed of pig and a small child could be a pretty dangerous mixture. Um, but this breed is like any age child can hop the electric fence and be standing in the pen. And these pigs, you know, the worst thing they're going to do is just kind of like smell you, maybe nibble on your fingers if they <laughs> think you're trying to feed them or something, but they're not at all like mean or vicious. And, you know, they, they won't even really knock a kid over. So they've been working out really well. Um, the post I think you're referencing was me going out to Justin's farm to get two more of them yeah. because originally all we had was a, a female, a sow, and then um, two barrows, which are castrated males. And okay. we really want to, we really want to have more pigs. And so I went up there and I got another female and I got an intact boar. Hmm. The, the other female was the runt of her litter and she was a super sweet pig, really unique, like had a really strong personality. And my employees fell in love with her and asked me if they could buy her and bring them, bring her into their house to be their <laughs> pet, which they have done. Okay. Uh, so I hear stories of, you know, the pigs sleeping in the kitchen on the floor while they're making French toast in the morning. Wow. <laughs> so that's definitely pig, an experience. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that, that's kind of funny. So you know, we went from three to five and now we're back at four. But um, we're really excited for that new intact boar and our female to breed for the first time because obviously having piglets on the farm is going to be super exciting and you know that'll just be how we continue to have pigs in the future um and cool. so yeah the goal with them you know they're they're miniature so the the yield of meat is not nearly as much as other as other pigs so i mean kind of like the same concept as the heritage breed chickens a commercial pork producer would not really want to mess with a kuni kuni because it takes like twice as long to get them to a weight that's like a third of what a what a commercial pig would be looking like. And so it's really, again, it's really much more for the backyard farmer, the small farmer, the homesteader um, because of the yield and also because of how much lard is on these pigs. So back in the day, so many products like candles and soap were made from lard and okay. nowadays fortunately a lot of those things have been replaced with different seed oils and cheaper alternatives um and people have really gotten away from keeping pigs in in harvesting their lard and making those kinds of products with them obviously there's still people out there doing it but commercially it's not done nearly as much um and so justin actually is a soap producer and so you know, part of the reason why he got into this breed was because he had an interest in making soap and he knew how much lard would come off of these pigs. And so the, you know, the main fat in his soap is his own pig's lard, which is pretty cool. Um, cool. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely, you know, aim to do really unique things like that with the lard. We want to be cooking in a lot of lard. Um, and then the meat itself is just amazing. It's, it, it looks like beef it looks a lot more like a deep red meat than you know compared to your light pink grocery store pork um mm. and it's completely different flavor you really taste the the age of the animal the you know diversified diet of the animal and all the grazing that it's done throughout its life it's really much more like having you know grass-fed beef than it is you know the other white meat which pork was kind of marketed as for for a little while so Cool. That's that's the story on the pigs. Awesome. Well, good luck to the pigs, and hopefully you get a lot of piglets. Uh, I'm gonna have to reach out to Justin about the, his like whole adventures soon. Um, I've seen his yep. stuff as well, and I, I think it's super fascinating. Uh, one more, I guess, bigger question, then we'll go into some smaller questions. So you kind of hinted at this a little bit ago, this farm to table aspect going into more so cooking again. What's the plan? I, I know we talked a little bit about like a food truck or a trailer. Or, what, what are you uh, looking to do in terms of like food, food production on the farm? Yeah. So um, when I was explaining the, the property search earlier, I was explaining a little bit about the two properties. So 
we have a residential property that's seven and a half acres and that's where currently the the pigs all the chickens and most of the vegetable production is happening mm-hmm. but then we have a two and a half acre property that abuts to this one and it's commercially zoned and it's this abandoned uh, garden center or nursery um the plan for that commercial part of the property is to build a restaurant and event space basically um so we feel like we can host an incredible you know culinary experience um because of you know how special kind of this this message is of growing food in this way and we want people to be able to come here and experience the farm but then experience the food i think you know too often people get to see a farm or get to tour a farm but they never really get to make the connection between what they saw and what they're actually producing or 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 sometimes you know what they're producing isn't necessarily done justice in the kitchen yeah um and so i think to be able to combine the experience with like the full farm experience plus this culinary experience um i think it's just going to be it's just going to kind of round everything out and it's going to it's going to make this place what it is and so um we are just starting the architectural design phase of designing some kind of building and you know we're thinking lots of outdoor seating kind of amongst the gardens and different edible plants and things and we want to have live music and really just have it be like a gathering place for all of cape cod all of new england we hope you know we hope people are going to be traveling here as a kind of a farm to table destination place um you know there's there's places like um you know stone barn center for food and agriculture which is obviously very large but you know, we we hope to evoke a similar feeling of this kind of agricultural farm-to-table paradise, if you will. And so because that process is going to take a little while, we're still just having initial talks with the architects, figuring out exactly what it is we're going to build. We wanted to be able to test the concept beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so we acquired a pretty freaking sweet food trailer. Um, it's about 30 feet long. And it has a full commercial kitchen in it. And it has a little porch on the back where we have our smoker and an extra fridge and um, prep table and stuff like that. But so the plan is to bring that out to the eventual site of the restaurant. So kind of during construction will kind of be, you know, in some little safe corner of the property, basically just testing this concept, um, testing a very, you know, a very casual version of the menu that we would want to serve. Just like a proof of concept for for you. Exactly. Exactly. So super simple food. You know, we're just going to start with breakfast just to get just to get the operations, you know, down and then we'll be moving into lunch. Um, But it's going to be simple, casual food that people want to eat. And we're just going to focus on the quality of the ingredients. And obviously, as much of the produce as we can will be coming from our own farm. We'll be trying to support as many other local farms as possible, especially in the area of sourcing meat um and you know if if nothing else we we want our menu to be fully organic we're we're really devout supporters of the organic movement and what that means for for not having um these harmful toxins and chemicals in our food and so you know you'll be confident in knowing that you know this food that you'll be eating at pelham farms is organic and as locally sourced as possible awesome well, wish you the best of luck. I'm excited to see it built out, and um, I'm gonna have to come out sometime and try some of it. <laughs> so absolutely, you do. Um, great. So just a couple of quick questions before we kind of wrap up here. What is yeah. a what's a crop failure that you've had that kind of helped you later on? Like, what's something that like didn't work out that helped you later on to just be more successful in what you were doing? Um. One of those would be um, we got our tomatoes started a little bit too early this year. Okay. We really wanted to have a jump start and we really wanted to have like some of the earliest tomatoes on the market. And because we have heated greenhouses, we thought we would really push the envelope and do that. But we started them a little bit too early and for their own good. And so 
they basically became a little bit root bound in their pots. Um, they started to get some pretty bad aphid pressure that really just got worse and worse. And we think that's because they were living in a pot for a little bit too long. And so they didn't have all the same, you know, natural defenses as a healthy thriving tomato plant in the ground in the right part of the season would have. And so we ended up having to get rid of a few hundred tomato plants because they just were starting to look pretty terrible. Um, so that was one failure. And we just know that we don't need to rush the starting of those seeds as much as we did. We can start those, you know, a few weeks later, more like April or maybe March instead of February, which is what we did. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, that was one. The other, only other really major one from this season was our summer squashes. So um, the vine borer really got to our summer squashes and we, we are still producing some. Um, we had a lot of plants in the ground and would be producing a lot more if we hadn't gotten hit by this. And um, we know now what to do for next year. We've, we've talked to a couple different people who have also gone through this and gotten some pretty good advice. So, you know, now we have a much better plan for starting tomato seeds in the early spring and um, how to work around the vine borer for zucchini. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, what's your morning look like? Like, what, do you have a routine or what do you, what's your, when are you waking up? What time are you waking up? Um, yeah. So Nick and I work pretty long days, especially with the trailer being here. Um, it's kind of, you know, we, we wake up, um, you know, usually around seven or so, not crazy early. We do have some employees who start at six, hmm. um, because they, they just prefer to work longer days. And so they get um, a lot of the opening stuff knocked out in the morning, just like the kind of daily stuff, opening up the farm stand, feeding all the animals, harvesting vegetables, all those good early morning tasks. Um, and then on Mondays, we have a team meeting at eight with our team here on the farm. And then I have a meeting with um, the person who is redesigning um a lot of our marketing stuff at nine mm. and then i have a meeting with the pelham partners um the four operational partners behind pelham at 10 so okay. mondays monday mornings are a lot of meetings and just like giving everyone the updates from the week we're constantly like you know have different things that we want to point out and remind our employees about certain things that are being done really well or not being done so well um, so that meeting with the team is very like operations based. And then the meeting with the partners is a little bit more strategic. Um, just kind of where we're at in the bigger picture with, you know, the farm and opening the food trailer and all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so the, the morning, the morning is really about, we have an awesome team. We, our team is a total of nine people, including Nick and myself, um, so a lot of our mornings are making sure that everyone knows what to be doing because, yeah. you know, there's there's so many things to be done and it's such a large and dynamic property that it can be pretty confusing for the employees just to show up and know, like, what's the top priority? Where's this project that I need to go do? What, you know, what tools and materials do I need to get it done? Where are those things? So, like, a lot of the early morning is just getting everyone set up on their projects and then you can kind of feel everyone is kind of just like, you know, gets into their zone. Everyone's kind of out working. And then um, usually Nick and I are just kind of working on more like administrative things, planning things, and then prepping and, and working on the, the food trailer. So, okay. um, you know, nowadays, now that we have the trailer, now that we have such a sizable team running the farm, Nick and I really spend most of our time on the trailer, getting it set the way we want to for opening um, and getting getting prep and preservation done with our summer harvest. We're getting, I forgot to mention cucumbers earlier, but we're growing a lot of cucumbers and so we're making a lot of pickles, um, you know, peppers, we're making pepper jam, eggplant, we're making like a fried olive oil eggplant spread with roasted garlic and thyme. Um, just stuff like that. And then, you know, the day can kind of sometimes go a little bit long. Sometimes work runs into dinner. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we're still prepping or whatever on the on the truck kind of into the night. So um, that's kind of why Nick and I's days don't start as early because they tend to usually go kind of long. Yeah. Um, but we're we're still kind of just figuring out, you know, what the what the best schedule is for everyone. And it's been kind of changing, like, you know, by micro season, if you will, especially with the the added element of the food trailer pretty recently. OK, cool. Um, what is, uh, you know, any advice you might have for someone listening? I know club is obviously has shaken up, uh, what people think of the food industry, whether you stay in it or you double down or you move out. Uh, but you know, you've, you've kind of always had this realm of like wanting to try different things. And for someone who's just like a little bit more curious about farming, where would you point them to in regards to maybe a book or a podcast or, I mean, obviously you can't learn all that with, you need to actually be doing it, but where's a good starting point for just someone who wants to do a small farm, not even a farm, just like a small like little bed in their garden or on their apartment. Where, where would you point them to for education? Yeah. So there are definitely a couple awesome people out there. Um, there's definitely a good handful of people in the small farming space that have really taken to um, you know, master classes and books and YouTube videos, lots of YouTube videos. Um, so the, you know, people that come to my mind would be, um, Jean Martin Fortier. He's a Canadian farmer. He has a pretty famous book called the market gardener. And that's kind of the gardening Bible for a lot of small farmers. Um, you know, it's got all the information from, you know, every single crop and, you know, what soil type it prefers, what climate it prefers, when to start the seeds, how to start the seeds, um, how much water, all of this kind of stuff. And and it's a really great book with lots of charts and lots of really helpful information. So that's kind of like a one-stop shop for market gardening. Um, I would say... Elliot Coleman is also really awesome, as well as Connor Crickmore from Never Sink Farm. These are all people that just put out really great materials. Um, Connor Crickmore does a lot on YouTube and on Instagram, and he sells a lot of tools that he makes himself. Um, if you're interested in like regenerative livestock and meat farming, I would say... Um, some places to check out would be um, Polyface Farm. So that's uh, Joel Salatin. He's mm-hmm. in Virginia. And then um, I'm drawing blank on, on the other one right now. Um, but it's in Bluffton, Georgia. Hold on one second. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> um, I'm drawing a blank on it, but it's a fantastic, fantastic farm. White Oak Pastures. Um, So that's another really great one. And you can get online and start to learn about them. The the farmer there is very outspoken about different things, but they are doing regenerative, you know, rotational grazing on a a pretty high level. And they're pretty well known for that. Um, And then... Yeah, if you haven't heard of Apricot Lane Farm, where I did my externship, definitely check them out. They've got a great movie, actually two movies because they made a sequel. Um, so definitely, if you haven't seen this little farm, go check that out. They're a great, great resource. You know, mostly for inspiration. They don't do a lot of like technical farming education um, stuff, but definitely watch that movie if you haven't already. And yeah, I mean, once you kind of start digging. You'll, you'll start to see kind of who the main people are. Like I said, there's a lot of people on YouTube, people that I didn't mention just now. So just kind of, you know, start searching. There's definitely, there's market gardeners, there's homesteaders. There's kind of a couple different like subgroups of people depending on what you're looking for. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. If you want to kind of lead people to, you know, where they can check you out, any plugs, any social media handles, anything like that, now's the time. Awesome. Yeah, so you can check out pelhamfarms.com. We're currently redoing our website to reflect all the new changes with the trailer and the farm stand and everything. Um, but pelhamfarms.com and then just at pelhamfarms on Instagram. And um, if you're at all local to the area or you're in the New England area and you want to make the trip out here, 
you know, please do. I'd love to connect with, you know, fellow chefs and food people, or even if you're not a food person, but you're maybe even slightly interested, you know, I love hosting people, love touring people around the farm. So um, we're in West Dennis and it's kind of in the middle of the Cape. And um, yeah, the address is 621 Main Street if you want to ever come check us out in person. Awesome. Well, I'm super, super excited to keep watching you grow. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, anything else you want to leave with the audience? Um, don't be afraid to uh, to pursue your dreams, even if they seem a little bit crazy. And, um, and know that we all need to play a role in bettering our food system because it's in a pretty bad spot right now. And we really need to work together to, to make it better for all of us. Cool. Agreed. Thank you, Don. Thanks, Ray. So there you have the interview with Dylan Leary. Thank you again, Dylan, for coming back on the show. Thank you all for listening to another week of the Line Cook Thoughts podcast. As a reminder, the newsletter goes out every Monday morning. So if you are listening today, a Sunday when this drops or at any other point, Put your email into linecooktoss.com, hit subscribe, and get the next newsletter. Do not miss out. It is a growing newsletter with already over 100 people from the Lion Cook Nation that have signed up in its first few weeks, and more people are signing up every day. So I really hope you all check it out. Also, if you're listening on Apple or Spotify, please leave a review. It is an honest review I'm asking for. I'm not asking for just like a perfect review, but really honest feedback and something that um, I can use to get better with the show and you know, just let me know what you think. Once again, thank you all for listening to this podcast, and I will see you on the next Line Cook Thoughts podcast.